Welcome to episode 36 of the PharmaExec podcast. I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of PharmaExec Magazine and your podcast host. PharmaExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. So guys, this week's episode, we're exploring what PharmaExec has been working on this summer, and I'm joined with Editorial Director Lisa Henderson, Managing Editor Michael Christel, and European and Online Editor Julian Upton. So we're going behind the scenes of our June issue, our July issue, and um, give you an idea of what will be coming out in the August issue in a week or so. So we want to give you an inside look at what we're talking about, why we think it's important, and why we're sharing these insights with you. And then I also talk about our transition into the fall with our product launch issue and give you a little bit of a sneak peek into what I've been writing about. So stay tuned, and we'll be back with our editors after a quick break. Recently, Editorial Director Lisa Henderson interviewed some pharmaceutical executives at the I for Pharma Philadelphia conference, and European and online editor Julian Upton interviewed execs at I for Pharma in Barcelona, and they both took place in March and April. So we speak with executives like Amy Nicole Nyer, the head of global patient relations at AbbVie, Chris Sellin, head of operational excellence and analytics at Decada, which was previously Shire. And then Jim uh, O'Donohue, president of S3 Connected Health. And those are just a few executives that we spoke with, um, just to just to give you a couple of names. But there are a myriad of people that we spoke with and on a variety of topics related to patient engagement. And the executives share insights on things from digital therapeutics, growth hacking, the development and improvement of patient engagement system population genomics, and a lot more. So you can watch these executive interviews right from our YouTube channel. You just search Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine on YouTube, or you can find our YouTube link on our website. And you can also find the videos on our homepage at farmexec.com. Hey, everyone. Today we're joined with Lisa Henderson, Editorial Director of Farmexec, Michael Christel, Managing Editor of PharmExec, and Julian Upton, European and Online Editor for PharmExec. Thank you guys for being with us today. I really appreciate it. So it's been a minute since we've had an editor podcast episode, and we wanted to give you a little inside scoop into what we've been publishing this summer and what we're working on for the fall. Let's jump right in and hear from our Managing Editor, Mike Christel, about our June issue. Mike, you wrote the feature around the top 50 pharma companies. Can you talk about that and maybe how it's compared to previous years and how things are looking for this year? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, we highlighted um, the top 50 drug companies again this year. This is our 19th listing. Um, The top 50 sales producers as far as prescription drug sales from 2018 uh, with help, with partnership again with Evaluate Pharma, who we've been working with on this feature for the last several years. So we we always appreciate collaborating with them, and, and they've been a great partner with us. So, again, we highlighted the prescription drug sales for 2018, the top three selling products for each company, and we also included R&D spending figures for those companies as well. Uh, Pfizer topped their list again uh, for the fourth straight year. Roche and Novartis came in uh, second and third. 
in, in my story, we do provide um, uh, some context analysis around the data. You know, I mentioned a few strategies that, that uh, Big Pharma and Biotech are focused on to to move up the rankings a little bit, or at least cement their you know position and maintain you know, attain a little stability. Um, you know, in the years ahead, well, you know, all the different market changes that are going on. So it is, you know, not a tremendous amount of movement in the list. You know, in the top 10, 20 this year compared to last year, and you know, in recent years. Uh, but it's still interesting to sort of see the jockeying and maneuvering of positions, uh, you know, one or two spots up, one or two spots down, and, and what are some of the impacting trends, you know, uh, driving those movements. So I try to focus on that in, in, in our analysis. The impacting trends, such as companies developing and, you know, getting approval for a new wave of products to replace, you know, their older blockbusters, and to offset some of the losses coming soon for, for um, their patented drugs when they go off patent. Also touch on, you know, companies like Novartis that, that, you know, they're not relying on one or two blockbusters to drive their growth. They're trying to anchor four or five uh, new products across multiple therapy carriers. You know, Novartis claims to have um, 25 blockbuster candidates in the clinic right now. And other outlets are predicting that they're going to be the world's top drug seller by 2024. So it'll be interesting to see if they reclaim their spot in our list um, in a couple, two or three years. Um, also, um, diversification, a lot of companies, um, you know, we, you got the whole deal-making M&A environment, which, you know, this course has heated up in recent weeks. You know, AbbVie buying Allergan in that huge deal, you know, Pfizer acquiring Array Biopharma. Uh, you have that, and you kind of juxtapose that with the um, BMSL gene deal that's still being approved, and Roche Spark, which, you know, are both in the middle of closing. So take taking a little while on those, but, but those should be done later this year or early next year. So that's that's part of the kind of diversification mix that companies are turning to to you know to put more R and D resources into therapeutic niches you know niches um like rare diseases that have stronger pricing power today. You know the Takeda Takeda um Shire merger is an example of that as well, you know, uh, with Shire being a rare disease company. I also touch in our future. We touch on you know farmers increasing global mission and focus. Um, you know what what are some of the top ten, twenty companies, big pharma? How are they investing in in global health? You know uh, population health and and how they're you know how the pipeline of uh, drugs and uh, you know um, underserved drugs underserved drugs in in, in you know uh, developing nations. How you know. How how is that pipeline improving? You know, um, diseases of high burden, stuff like that. Um, so we get into that, which, which sort of plays into our into our accompanying piece um, that we have provided. You know, submitted by Lawrence Lawrence Sufer, the founder of EM Ocean Coaching and Consulting. She presents strategies uh, for pharma, for biotech, in navigating organ, organizational disruption and leading companies through global change. So disruptions such as you know, trade wars, uh, technology advancement, digitalization, economic fluctuations in different regions, social political um, issues. So that's sort of we like we that sort of complements we think are um, at top 50 pretty well. You know she she sort of describes some strategies that that um, you know a, a checklist. I, I, she actually provides a checklist for executives you know leading through change and implementing their vision. Um, so I encourage everyone to give that a read. If you haven't already, and we also, you know, I also touch on the R and D, you know, the shifting R and D environment and how that may be influencing the top 50, you know, in the years ahead. Of course, you know, 2018 there were 59 
um, drug approvals, which was big. Um, 27 of those were for precision medicines. So, and 42% were based on one trial. So you're seeing more and more approvals and launches by smaller clinical state developers, you know, so-called emerging biopharma companies. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, the R&D ships uh, might, you know, uh, reshape the, our list, the top 50 list in the future. You know, of course, that, you know, the commercial impact ultimately, you know, could be still a few years away, you know, till we realize that. But um, we try to tie all that in and, you know, present present a picture of, you know, not only 2018, but, you know, what what it means, you know, in the years ahead. So So we'll continue to watch that. That's really great. Thanks, Mike, for giving our listeners a little more insight into June. Uh, sure. Lisa, would you mind speaking to our listeners about the July issue and what it was focused on? Sure. So July is, um, this July is the second July in a row that we've covered compliance. You know, I attended the Pharmaceutical Compliance Congress in Washington, D.C. at CBI's conference. It's big. There's over 300 attendees. And this year, there was probably an equal amount of um, representatives from smaller uh, um, biopharma as well as large, large pharma. So I had the chance to sit down with two executives, lawyers, and uh, the Brian Aaron, who is also the chairperson of the event. Um, he's the vice president and chief compliance officer for the U.S., and U.S. Country Head Ethics and Compliance for Novartis, and also Jennifer McGee, who is Vice President, Chief Compliance Officer for Atsuka America Pharmaceutical. So as you can imagine, there are, this conference has multiple tracks because there are so many issues related to regulatory, legal, and compliance. So in the, when I sat down with them, we decided to focus on disruptors. So what is coming along that's disrupting. I mean, there's anything can be disruptive. So it well has the potential for disruption. So one thing that is has been a trend in larger pharma in the past four or five years is a move toward principles-based policies. So instead of having a large book, you know, for example, that would list how you are supposed to act or what you need to comply with in each of the areas of company responsibility, which you would get handed to you when you're, um, when you join the company. I mean, obviously we all got an employee handbook, but it's nowhere near as large as what pharmaceutical employees have to receive because there's obviously a much highly regulated industry. So the goal was if you move or the the theory is if you move to principles based that is much easier than looking for a rule in a 30 40 50 page document to find out how you can um how you're supposed to handle this certain situation. So of course that comes down to you know what they're allowed to spend on a travel and expense, what they can do you know, out in the field, how they're allowed to um, conduct themselves. So what they, what both of them have done, Brian and Jennifer, the in charge of taking those large poly, large handbooks, large regulations that they have internally and turn them into principles. So instead of following a chapter and a verse, you are schooled and trained and educated on this is the principle. 
this is why we do what we do. This is why this exists. This is who it affects, either our stakeholders, our employees, our patients, our partners, and this is why you should not be doing certain things. So they found that while some people like to be looking at a large document that says, I can do this, but I can't do this. I guess people that are more like um, black and white, you know, I want to know exactly what I can and cannot do. That's not this. This is more like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this because we've discussed it, even though it's not maybe specifically written in legalese in a document. So that's quite a shift for companies. And they, and Jennifer and Brian pointed out to me, they're not the first, you know, Novartis and Atsuka aren't the first moving to this, but it's definitely difficult. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of training. And they did discuss the different aspects of training that they engage in to, um, for the employees. So even though that's not like, say, a disruptive technology or a disrupt, it is a change management. It's a, it, it, so it's a disruptor for each company. And it is a disruptor on the, um, for the other companies that are learning from these larger companies, you know, how do we make sure that we comply? What do we do? That was really interesting. So that took up a good part of our conversation. And then they also touched on security, you know, privacy. They have a lot of issues, you know, with privacy, obviously, that um, while you look at your IT systems or your um, those kind of things, you know, your data collection in all areas for their patient access programs, for their clinical trials programs, for their past contracts with former partners, as well as employee data. They have a lot of data. So information security-wise, you'd be, as Jennifer says, you'd be pretty hard-pressed if you don't have a policy or a compliance in place right now to make sure that your data is safe and on track. And, you know, you're kind of behind the ball here. So that was her point. That's only going to obviously data problems, uh, security, privacy issues are only going to continue to increase because of the myriad of systems that especially, you know, these larger companies collect data on. So they they felt both um, Brian and Jennifer felt that smaller companies might have the advantage here because they can build their systems with that already in mind, you know, whereas the larger companies have to piece all these uh, siloed systems together, figure out where the data is, how they're going to protect it, what they can share, what they can't share. But, you know, so that was one disruptor is the security. The other one is interesting to me also because it comes up across functions. So we hear a lot about predictive analytics. In, and so predictive analytics is just a way of getting your data to speak to you, to tell you where your risk areas are, where things could go wrong, you know, and predict based on what you're telling me, what the computer, what the data is telling me, this is where you might have a problem. So you can use this across the board. Obviously, you can use it for clinical trials. You can use it in um, commercials, obviously in commercialization in um, financial, you know, for um, risk models for, for their, you know, for a new compound or something, a pipeline, if they want to purchase it or not. But regardless, so, you know, they were saying in this area specifically, they can use predictive analytics and they've started to use it to predict where someone or where based on the information that they have, they might have a risk of someone violating a rule. You know, if they didn't have enough training or they didn't 
look at enough documents or they didn't have, or this is a really large trial or um, with a lot of moving parts, they can see where an employee might need more training in a certain area. So it's interesting, you know, when you look, when, you know, we, we get so much PR about predictive analytics from technology companies, then we're always looking for specifics. And those specifics run the gamut across pharma. So I thought that was interesting. Then I guess um, Julian also wrote about compliance in specifically in Asia Pacific. So I don't know if Julian wants to talk about that. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I worked on. And um, it's very difficult to obviously present that in a kind of fairly short article. So we kind yeah. of... Uh, just zeroed in on some of the key things. But I mean, one of the actual issues was that, you know, how companies divide up their their teams, their functions, and, you know, Asia or Asia Pacific, such a huge, huge geographical area. And of course, presents the problems of all different sorts of cultures, different ways of doing things. And so there was things that stood out in that piece. Um, uh, the key things, I think, about trying to be compliant in the region, trying to, trying to get your companies and, and trying to get Asian companies to, to all uh, be on the same page. I think... Um, you know, the problem with, with working with third-party partners uh, is, is a big issue uh, uh, within different countries in, in, in Asia. And interestingly, this, the speak-up culture is another thing, particularly prevalent in perhaps a place like Japan, which is a very advanced market. But, um, you know, that kind of whistleblowing mentality that goes with, that, that, can, that, that, that maybe compliance want to encourage if there's something that's not being uh, done properly, it, it's kind of a, a task in, in certain places. So, you know, obviously... You can't paint the whole thing with one brush, but um, some countries are very advanced. Some countries are, are not advanced at all. So, so that's what I talk about in in that. And uh, so it's a fairly it's a fairly broad look at uh, what what the key things are for companies uh, working uh, or com- functions working in compliance. But I think you know there's a lot of there's a lot of advance being made. China, you know, particularly there's there's, there's leaps and bounds from where it was maybe you know ten years ago. Um, so uh, that that's what I worked on. Yeah, so Kristen, that was our July issue. I think it's on, well, it's online now, and I guess it should be um, arriving on people's desks if they get the print copy soon. So, you know, that's always a good read. So I encourage um, people to check that out. Thanks, Lisa. That's awesome. Julian, do you want to maybe hop back on and talk about the August issue? Maybe a synopsis of what you worked on and some more depth into what the issue focused on and why it's important we feature the subject. Yeah, we're just, the August one's coming up, so we're we're finishing it now in the next week or so. It's going to be a gene therapy focus, really. We're going to be having a commentary by Kevin uh, Slatkovitz, who's uh, president and founder of Think Quality and a mass bio member uh, about how to scale up gene therapy. Uh, we've got something from PwC, um, which are revealing the, the, the five pillars of success, uh, which are unique to gene th- therapy drug development. We'll also be taking a look at the uh, FDA's efforts to advance gene therapy, particularly their, their six guidance documents, and, and discuss the implications for uh, clinical development of new gene therapy products. A couple of things that I worked on. Uh, one was um, a recent conversation, which was at the Viva Commercial and Medical Summit Philadelphia this year, which took place between Viva's Matt Wallach and Spark Therapeutics' uh, Jeffrey Marazzo, who's the CEO. Uh, and I'm sure people know that uh, Spark Therapeutics was uh, the first ever company to have a gene therapy approved in the US, and that's Lux Sterner, a one-time treatment for adults and children with inherited retinal dystrophy caused by 
RPA65G mutations. Um, that's a, a rare disorder which can cause vision loss and blindness. That's been a, a pretty a pretty notable development, not least because of price. And so we present um, this conversation that took place between Marazzo and uh, Matt Wallach with their fireside chat. Uh, we we just present some highlights of that. And I just wanted to zero in on things like pricing, which is one thing you couldn't ignore in the chat, you know, with, especially with Lux Sterner costing $850,000 dollars um, or four hundred twenty-five dollars thousand dollars per eye so uh, you know Marazzo is interesting how he explained how they came up with that that price and uh, uh, and how they can you know justify it and of course one of them is it's, it's a it's a one dose treatment and he did point to the fact that there are still patients benefiting from that one dose five years later uh, there wasn't a lot a lot longer to to, to follow up on so Five years on, there's still patients benefiting from that. Um, but what I thought was interesting was Spark offered, had offered different ways in which they could approach pricing. One was a model where they'd structure a relationship directly with the payer and not require the hospital to uh, take possession of the therapy or the financial obligation. And another one was that he actually mentioned, uh, Marazzo said that Luxterna, he feels, should be paid for on a recurring basis, subject to its continued performance. But the actual system is not set up to to do that yet so it's not just a it's not just black and white you know high price can't afford it it's there's there's, there's lots of ways around it uh they're, they're working on ways around it and he's actually also mentioned that treatments uh, patients treated so far they've either had insurance coverage or they've had a path to insurance coverage so nobody's sort of gone without it so uh, that's that's one thing i, I talked to uh, he talks about and um it goes into the science of it and how it's delivered. I better not get into that into too much detail. So I'll move on to just finally to uh, the interview I did, which was with Jeff McKay, who's co-founder and CEO of Avro Bio. And this is going back to the single dose thing. Um, Avro Bio is a clinical stage company developing disruptive therapies, targeting lysosomal storage disorders. And they have a lentiviral approach to gene therapy, which quickly involves collecting the patient's blood, selecting out the patient's uh, C- CD34 hematopoietic stem cells, I don't even know how to say, and giving the stem cells an upgrade. Um, and they transduce, transduce them with a lentiviral vector, uh, and that's a virus that delivers the normal healthy genes into the cells, uh, integrating into the cells. That's just a quick overview, but basically, Jeff, uh, was extolling the advantages again of a single dose treatment, which say if you compare with something the current standard of care for Fabry disease at the moment, it's biweekly infusions for the life of the pa- patient. So the standard of care today is is this process, which is a total disruption of the patient's life. You know, you've got the one to two hour infusion uh, every two weeks. Uh, you've got the commute each way, massive impact. So moving to a single dose, one time infusion is going to have obviously lots of benefits. And one of them being, you know, uh, on quality of life. So just moving on, though, to what I was interested about with uh, with Jeff is that um, he's had a long background in gene therapy, uh, which is, you know, uh, he's been in it for a long time, which is not what not what you can say about everybody. He was 11 years at Novartis and then he um, became CEO of Organogenesis back in 2003. He was a, an early mover in the gene therapy field. Organogenesis has since treated sort of like over 1 million patients with living cell therapies and that was the first to receive approval for uh, allergenic cell therapy and I, what I find interesting was he left organogenesis when it grew you know into a company of 600 people he wanted to take a step back and move to more 
early stage innovation. So he's an interesting person and he's well placed to talk about how the gene therapy field has, uh, has changed and expanded uh, over the last, you know, you can talk about the last 15, 20 years. Um, so he's the cover story for August and along with all the other gene therapy um, items that we have. Thanks, Joey, and that's really great information. Since we've covered what we've been working on this summer, I wanted to give you a little bit of an inside look at what we're doing for September. So our September issue looks at the current product launch landscape. So from specific challenging brand launches to current multi-channel marketing techniques to which brands did it best. And this issue really showcases why pharma excels at commercialization. I don't want to spoil your reading uh, in September, but I'll give you a little sneak peek into the product that I personally am writing about. So I'm working on a piece about Amavig, which is a pretty exciting drug in my opinion. And I really advocated for writing about this treatment because what's special about it is that it prevents migraines rather than something that you would just take once your migraine appears. So I'm going to share just a few facts and things I'll be mentioning in the article without really giving you too much detail. The price, which is usually the first thing that everybody wants to know about, it is high, but it's lower than one would expect it to be. It's around $6,900 per year. And if you consider that a lot of people who have chronic, unmanageable migraines, they often end up in hospitals and, you know, more doctor visits and it's costing them more money. So in the long run, um, the price seems a little bit more manageable. And then some other things, uh, the side effects can be quite different from traditional migraine meds, even better maybe because Amovig doesn't seem to be causing any cognitive effects or weight loss or gain, which is something we see a lot with other migraine treatments. Um, and it's also sub, subcutaneous Um, And each dose is doled out once a month. So it's certainly very good for adherence issues. And then I'll leave you with just an interesting little tidbit about Amavig's main competitor, Emgality, which is an Eli Lilly drug. Emgality is another migraine preventative treatment, and it's very similar. They're different, but they work in similar ways. But I read recently that uh, the biomedicine's chief, Christy Shaw at Lilly, she's stepping aside fairly early into their launch. So this drug was only approved by the FDA in June of this year. And she's, you know, only stepping aside maybe a little over a month after it was launched. So take what you will from that. But as we move into the fall, I think we've got some really great material for you all to read on product launches and beyond. And we're looking forward to your feedback and hearing what you have to think about our articles. And I just want to thank everybody for coming on the call today and being with us and talking about the issues that we've been working on. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmExec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmExec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of farmexec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mmhgroup.com And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker 
at tbaker at mmhgroup.com.